Welcome to In The News, Conversations Around Security, a new and dynamic podcast where we dissect the day's headlines through the critical lens of security risk management and where awareness meets analysis. Join us on the 1st and 15th of each month as we bring you a fresh episode packed with informative debates, expert analysis, and thought-provoking insights offering a nuanced perspective on the stories that shape our world. So buckle up and join us for a look at what's in the news, Conversations Around Security. One, hello and welcome to In the News, Conversations Around Security. I'm Luciano Cedroni and with me is Brian Clayman. And today we have another special guest, Bill Needles. You may have you may recall the name from our previous podcast series on uh, protecting your assets. Bill's a longtime uh, Toronto Police um, commander. You were in charge of public order. You were in charge of emergency response. So a lot of the specialty units, Bill brings a wealth of information to the conversation today, uh, which basically continues what we've been talking about since we relaunched as In The News. We started talking about uh, the issues with uh, police response in the city. Um, and that sort of gravitated towards how, um, well, the, the, the war in Israel, in Israel and Gaza and the conflict going on there and the protests that have since spread from that into the city caused some issues. Um, and then lastly, you know, last couple episodes, we talked with um, Phil Gursky, a uh, former CSIS operative who um, gave us his insights and experience in terms of what Hamas means for Canada. Uh, because even though it, it is happening, uh, seems like a well, it is a half world away. We've uh, we've experienced some of those repercussions, and so today we're really talking about how the police manage those issues here at home. Uh, because at the end of the day, they're the ones dealing with the outcries, the protests, the vandalism that's happening, the threats that have happened, um, and so that's why we thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring back Bill, and uh, he can share his experiences with with managing similar events in the past, and certainly provide us with some insight and visibility as to what goes on with the, you know, the police during those types of situations, how are those decisions made, um, the influences that that may determine what type of strategies they have. Um, so, but before we get into that, I'm going to turn over to Brian uh, to say hello and uh, welcome our guest, Brian. Hey, Bill, Luke, Bill, great to see you. Bill's back, I think, for the 17th time or something. But <laughs> Thanks, it's- gentlemen. Not, not a problem. Enjoy, uh, enjoy the discussions we have. It's always fun to have Bill because he has a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I'm really looking forward to today's uh, uh, episode because we've talked about what the threats are. Everyone uh, watches TV, sees the newspaper, sees the demonstrations. Uh, It's not just Toronto. It's not just Canada. It's throughout the Western world, actually. Toronto has a really unique and excellent way of dealing with protests. So uh, looking forward to talking to Bill and getting some insights from him. Cool. All right. Well, Bill, do you want uh, any opening words or you just go right into the uh, question sets here that we have lined up for you? Well, I, I guess I should outline a little bit for some of your folks before they jump off is uh, what my background experience yeah. is yeah. In, in Toronto Police. So um, I was the unit commander of public emergency management of public order for a lot of years, mm-hmm. you know, helped with, uh, you know, bringing in the public order system that we have when we started back in 2000s, 2000 when we, uh, after the Queens Park riot, we we started to go through the Harris protest years. So we had, we had what they're doing today too, is working a lot with our GTA partners and our OPP counterparts and, and public order especially, uh, and did a lot of work uh, at the command and control component from where we started then. And 
was gold, silver, bronze, and we've sort of switched over. Now we have switched over to the IMS system. So it's 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 kind of a unique uh, policing component that uh, more times than not, uh, when you start to, to compound the, what is considered the largest use of force option that the service probably puts together, when it usually rides out a public order section, one of them is about 50, 40 to 50 officers, depending on how they set it up on that given day. So it's a pretty unique situation. And then when you add what the Toronto Police delivers with the with the mounted unit as a support piece to it, uh, and other other uniform members and bikes bike officers, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty compelling component to the policing strategy which takes a lot of planning and a lot of a lot of practice but uh so it's it's no it's, i don't think it's anything that the officers here are unfamiliar with after they've been in the public order venue for a little bit so this this is kind of something that's not totally new for toronto police and you know what we'll go through some of your some of your ideas and your pokings and proddings and see which see what see how I can put some meat on the bones to some of your questions for you, gentlemen. Yeah, Bill, I, I, go ahead, Brian. Oh, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say uh, with your introduction, you got me thinking. You're right. Your background was public order, and for those who don't really understand public order, would it be fair to say the riot squad, if you will, the guys? Yeah, and we don't we don't want to call it the riot squad, yeah. um, uh, because yeah, it it can be for sure. Like the public order unit members get more training than any other part of the police service, I think, in, in what we call community-based policing. I would say that when they start, when they, when they put on their public order unit, they become a community officer first. Let's talk. Let's see how I can, you know, help you, whatever. That's the, the mantra. Uh, you know, com tactical communication, as we call it. Talk to your people. Uh, public order officers, that's part of their, their their mantra is, let's find out what we can, how we can help you. I'm your police officer for the day. How can I help you, Brian? And that that then takes them from every step of the dynamics of the day are. If, if it brings that riot squad out in them, you saw that in G20. You saw how proficient and dynamic a public order unit can be when they're when they're actually moving in unison and and practicing what they're taught, right? It can be that riot squad, but that's not what they're designed to be. Well, th thank. Look, I'll just let me just finish off. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's a really good point. Really, what I meant to say for those that weren't familiar with the term, they're really the guys you can identify. Then they're the guys that wear the helmets. They got the shields, the visors compared to the other police officers that are not tacked out the same way. Is that fair? That's fair. Yeah. Don't quite wear the same uniform, but that's fair. When you see when you see a group of officers in helmets and shields, that is your public order unit. Thanks. I think that's a good place to start because you started to touch on our first question, Bill. And I think, uh, you know, to your point, it's nothing new to, to the city of Toronto. We've had our share of... Uh, protests that have gone bad and, and you, you sort of refer back to Fort uh, been there done that for yeah. a lot of them yeah yeah exactly I remember G20 and 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 how that went sour on the Sunday and and, and we're going to talk a little bit about why the difference on the Saturday and the Sunday and some of the decision making behind that but before we talk about that we really wanted to get an understanding of how important it is to appear to be impartial and and I want you to sort of think of the question on two aspects one is you've got sort of the public impartiality. And, and I think about the guy with the coffee and the latest incident on uh, 
with the protests over the bridge there with the Gaza and protesters where, I mean, if the coffee, it's just a coffee at the end of the day, if the officer had refused it, he would have gotten, yeah, you know, but, he would have yeah, a problem. Yeah, I, I have, I have absolutely no issue with, exactly. that, with that officer, though people think it had a piece of impartiality, exactly. but Either I think uh, that's part of the, the community basing policing that they let's, what can I help you with today? Right. If, if they're not, causing a problem and I, I don't know all of the circumstances about how that individual got on that side and the officer in the middle and he's in a position to deliver the coffee but i don't see any big de deal to it yeah I, I think that's part of it like that's the public piece that that the press is going to play either way the guy was sure. sort of screwed right whether he took it or not they were going to play either way. the other one was the guy with the canadian flag and being told to move on he was there to antagonize the crowd. One guy, and you know, the officer's in a tough spot again. He's got a hundred people protesting against the flag, and he's got one person there to antagonize. You got either way, he's going to go sour. So there's a yeah. public element, and then the other element I want you to touch on is at the end of the day, even though you want to be impartial, you still got the law to enforce, and that's played a lot into the recent protests where people are like, you know, what the, what are the police there for? They're not enforcing the law. They're not stopping them from making threats. So that's sort of our kickoff question. Okay. You want me to start now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So the key word is impartiality. Um, that is the the number one. Well, the number one thing is public safety, yeah. and you can't have public safety without the officer safety. <laughs> so the officers have to first off find themselves in a safe position because if they're not safe, then then the whole thing goes sideways. But when they deal with one group versus the other group and find themselves with, in a lot of situations, something like what we're facing right now in the middle, the, the meat in the sandwich of two, uh, two groups, two, two factions that aren't friendly to each other or have different points of view, yeah, the, the police have to maintain that impartiality. So something as simple as when you're down the middle, you can't look at one group and not look at the other group. And that's why they somewhat do a staggered looking backward for both groups, but because that's actually a safer thing to do. But at the same time, it's it's perceived that they're fair and impartial. Because if you look at one line looking this way and not that way, then people on this side say, you're facing us because um, you know, you think we're bad or you're yeah. got your back to them because you're they're not bad, you're protecting them. It's all perception of placement on body language, on real language of being being impartial when a question's asked. Officer, why are you here? I'm here to ensure public safety. That's always what we teach as their first line. We're here to ensure public safety. Who's theirs or ours? like everybody's right so it's no one situation but absolutely everything that the police do uh, even when it goes dynamic is to try and show impartiality and then the level and the use of force that comes out of whatever the dynamics bring has to be fair and responsive and within the law i i just want to talk about the impartiality or the perception piece that luke brought up and i'm going to take exception a little bit to his point on the coffee and bill i'm not even expecting you to to respond but all i would say is the perception becomes a reality impartiality is what uh is is a perception to be perceived and that coffee instant there were a lot of people that perceive that 
not as being That's a right. You're fact, right, Brian. That yeah. protester said on camera, which went throughout the world, we've got them uh, serving us coffee. Yeah. And they use that to their favor. So I would suggest, and no one has to respond, but that was a misstep. And it's okay. It's very dynamic. These things happen really quickly. But the spin-off became a story on itself. When if the, you know, my point is, you achieve impartiality by not taking sides, which the police and Toronto police don't do, and you just enforce the law. And whether side A breaks it or side B breaks it, it gets enforced. Yeah, this 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 small incident does reflect maybe what you're saying, Brian. But there's also many others that, and this one's got blown out just because the media saw it on 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 TV. But there are a lot of other ones. That have taken place, I'm sure, or according that you know, favor the other side, or favor this side, or favor both sides. Yeah, I, I, I won't argue that on its face, with what was presented, was looks like a misstep for the Toronto Police and Chief Demke assured that you know they'll look at that event and see what happens. And I think it's come down to, uh, and we won't hear the internal investigation result because they keep that internal and rightfully so. But um, I, I'm just going to say that's going to be. Let's try and keep that level of impartiality as best we can. Right? There, I don't. I don't believe there'd be any disciplinary action on that officer. He's there doing what he felt as a, yeah. you know, a community. You know, let's yeah. just help this along. But I'm sure Chief Demkew has reissued the let's be impartial and let's let's look more impartial. Let's not get caught on camera like that again. Well, and I just want to add to that in defense of that officer. Okay, I don't know. I don't think, and I'm not saying he did anything wrong. I I heard Mark Mandelstein on News Talk 1010 talk about the fact that he found it interesting that he didn't see a lot of crusty staff sergeants or sergeants on site. And he brought up the fact that uh, there would be a crusty staff sergeant that probably allowed him or told him to do it. Well, he brought up the point I was going to say about the political stuff, and Luke's going to get to that in one of the questions we want to talk about, is that there's not a lot of resources. The police were overwhelmed. And why is that? Is it because they're incompetent or we just don't have enough, enough police officers in the city? And that you want, tells you want me to answer that one? Yes, please. Oh, I, 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 well, you look at it. I'm sure the, with the, the number of police officers, and we can talk, we, we don't want to get into too much about the, the most recent budget. But but with that shortfall of 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 money that's just been re reallocated uh, somewhere else in the city's budget and wasn't given to the police, um, it will show dynamically really badly in the next little while. Yes. So you've got uh, officers leaving the Toronto Police Service in droves. You've got uh, probably now I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm guessing it's probably creeping up to a hundred a year. And you have about 200 that retire. So, so that's just for argument's sake. In the next 12 months, they're going to lose 300. And I don't think this will allow them to keep that 300 pace. So they're go they're stepping back yes. on overall numbers. And then the overall numbers don't reflect the number of public order uh, officers that volunteer to join the public order unit. And that, that I think that number is probably uh, shrinking as well. And that just the sheer number of protests that they've had to deal with, I don't know, every weekend for the last couple of months, mm -hmm. the public order unit's been out there. So that's every weekend on top of their own shifts, 
right? These guys aren't pulled off to shift. I haven't heard that yet. Like we did when uh, in 1999, when the U.S. bombed Kosovo and we were down there for 90 straight days, um, the service actually pulled two full sections out of the service and, and sent them to the public order unit permanently for that period of time. But that's not what's being done here. So these officers are getting tired and don't have the ability and once you get tired it's you're in trouble you, you think differently you make different responses and it becomes a question so they don't have the officers that can rightfully continue at this pace and, and that was exactly my point i mean clearly it may have been a misstep that coffee thing but there's a lot of context to it that yeah I'm there sure. is the, you, no. we, we, you know what there's context to everything and i and i won't argue with that no, but I'm, 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 support, I'm supporting your position i don't think the officer made a mistake i mean it just was not an optimal situation there's a lot of things people have to understand that are happening that you don't see in a 30 second clip that's the only point i'm okay. agreeing with you. All right, let's move on because we're going to take it off the rails. And that's well, I, I need I need a coffee now, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, Brian, you're closest. You bring it to him. Uh, all right, let's go to the next question. I'm actually going to put these together. They're two and three because I think they're going to influence each other. But basically, Bill, when you're when you're well, I think there's a difference here. We got to distinguish between uh, a planned event where you know it's coming, uh, such as the G20 or a, a spontaneous event, ad hoc, that uh, just spreads out, you know, unplanned, and your guys are sort of unaware of it. How do you, who develops a tactical strategy? How do you develop that tactical strategy without giving up any of the secrets, obviously? We're not asking that. But how much influence can a, an incident commander have, and how much does the command have over that incident commander? Because the incident commander, at the end of the day, is the one most intimate with what's going on, I would, would presume. So, but you've always going to have that 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 guy over you, and 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 this leads to the the third question, which is how much political interference. And I know you've had some challenges with that one. Um, can can derail your planning, right? Like these guys are going to go take up the gardener. You know, it's going to be a dangerous situation. We've had that with the Tamils before. We've had that also with with the Palestinians. Now I was there. I was on yeah. the gardener with the Tamils. Exactly. So you know very well what what plays into your head as a commander when you set up for that. So. Let's just, we'll just talk, I guess, theoretically right now, the strategic, strategic, as we teach them in IMS, it's strategic operational tactics. The strategical piece that will also include what you're trying, what you're referring to in political world, that comes from senior, senior management. That comes from the deputy chiefs and the chief. And they would then have that discussion if they have any specific uh, strategies that they'd like to, you know, put in there other than, Public safety, keep keep everybody as safe as you can. And then the strategy that came down was another, you know, yeah. they're not going on the, on the Avenue Road Bridge. That came from the strategic group at, uh, at headquarters, no doubt. It comes down to the operational level, which is the, the incident commander who would probably, in this case, these cases are sitting in the, the 12th floor at headquarters. So that's the incident commander. Now, it's the incident commander develops the, the objectives from the strategy and the con conferences and the level and the discussions with the chief and the deputy chief as it comes down. That, that incident commander sets the objectives. The, those objectives are then told to the public order commander who's in charge of the public order unit. So the public order unit now has to take those 
those strategic and goals and objectives, and he makes those operational. He or she makes those operational. And then in conference with the, the officers in the public order unit, who are the they put the tactics in place. The public order commander will not tell necessarily directly what the tactics are on the ground. He will refer those and, and pass those down to the individual section chiefs or the section public order commanders for each one of those. So that's kind of how that, that's done. And then do they have any political interference? I will not say <laughs> that there's not confrontation, not conversations between the chief and anybody at city hall whether that be the mayor or anybody else i'm i don't we don't get involved in those conversations and quite frankly i don't think the mayor has no direction legally to tell the chief what to do operationally so the the, the mayor may say something to the chief and the chief can say yes no maybe to those kinds of directions but that it's up to the chief and the deputies to make the strategic oversights that play right down to the street. Okay, folks, we're going to leave it there for part one. Please join us in a couple of weeks where we will finish off our conversation with Bill Needles and talk about what it takes to manage protests in a city like Toronto.